to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Um, so when you were on episode one, you were just plain old Clayton Lamb, like like the rest of us. Yeah. And now you're uh, Dr. Clayton Lamb. Yeah, I defended my uh, my PhD in November there. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. So just uh, walk us through that a little bit, like when you... You know, when you become a doctor, you get a PhD, defend a thesis, like what, what is involved? Like what, what does that mean? Yeah. So the, like a, doing a thesis basically means that you have a number of sort of research questions that you're going to ask and mine are around grizzly bears. Um, and you know, you basically have say five or six different questions that you ask within that, um, put it all together and what they call a thesis. And then you basically put that in front of a committee of experts, global experts. So mine was um, Dr. Stan Booten and Dr. Scott Nielsen, who are at the University of Alberta. And they were my supervisors, so they worked with me on that. But then you have these external folks that are not don't know me and are not part of this. So we actually flew Dr. Uh, John Svensson in from um, from Sweden. And uh, so he was the external, like he's a, a European brown bear expert okay and so he read that whole thesis it's 200 pages and he was sort of the external examiner to say whether this was legitimate and you know past peer review and then um dr andrew deroche who was on the uh, show previously a polar bear expert was sort of the he was the arm's length examiner so he kind of knew me but wasn't familiar with my work and wasn't um you know he had no stake in the game so he was sort of the arm's length person so get in the room with all those folks and i present the research and then they they grill me basically and see if I pass the bar and whether the work is of quality. And if not, then, you know, they pr- sort of provide re- areas that it can be fixed or you pass without revisions. And I was fortunate. I passed without revisions and they all signed off and that was it. PhD was done. Wow. Yeah. So it's a pretty stressful time. It was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was busy times, but it was good, and then I hopped on a plane and went to Peru for a month. So yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good, goodbye, everybody. Yeah. And then you just recently got an award um, for the way in which you delivered your dissertation. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So your I got dissertation being actually presenting your thesis, which is what you just described, right? That's the process. It's called. Yeah, and and the award is actually for the the whole thesis itself. So okay. it was, uh, uh, yeah, th- I can't remember what it was called now. Uh, doctoral dissertation award yep. from the University of Alberta. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So. Just, that was just like last week or something. So Yeah. Yeah, that's um that that's amazing. Yeah, good for you. Now uh, you've kind of moved on to a couple new projects, um some stuff with caribou recovery in northern BC. Yeah, exactly. And a bit about what we're gonna talk today on road ecology and wildlife collision mitigation in the Highway Three corridor. Totally. So, so now how does that work too? Because pe- people are going to be like, well, I thought you were an expert in grizzly bears, so you would only work on grizzly bears. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the skills that we learn are pretty, they transcend species, especially my skill set is more around population demographics. So, you know, survival rates, reproductive rates, how animals interact with the landscape. And then my skill set also sort of overlaps with these applied outcomes. That's, you know, why the highway mitigation stuff was up my alley. But that's also where my skill set sort of overlaps with the caribou problem. So I was brought on as a postdoctoral fellow to work with the West Moberly and Soto First Nations, uh, basically between Chetwind and um, 
Mackenzie sort of thing in the Central Mountain group yep. of Caribou. And uh, yeah, so I'm working with the, the nations and um, trying to help them in their vision of recovering Caribou up there, which is a really exciting project. It's one of probably the most successful example we have of Caribou recovery in Canada. And it's an Indigenous-led um, conservation effort. And just last week, they uh, they signed a huge partnership agreement, um, which is in the news, which basically means that uh, it's a trilateral agreement with the uh, with the nation of Canada, with the province of BC, and with the Indigenous governments. Yes. And it basically lays a, a plan out for how to recover caribou in that area, some habitat protection and some uh, moratorium on um, industrial development. Yep. And, and a new provincial park is going to be e part of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, it's it's really a landmark conservation for caribou. Um, so yeah, it's really exciting, and I'm really honored to be part of that group because they're doing yeah amazing work, and I just trying to see how I can support them and just kind of get into it now. Bring bring your skill set to it. Well, that, that's good, and I mean, plus once you're done school, you guys gotta have a job and make some money, and yeah, <coughs> according to uh, to Dr. Adam Ford over at UBCO, there grizzly bears are out and hummingbirds are in for indicator yeah. species now so <laughs> yeah. that's his, his latest paper so yeah so adam's adam's <laughs> actually my supervisor for the postdoc okay so adam and uh and dr uh, mark Hubboyd from Uni university of montana so yeah adam and i had a good volley of uh, tweets about that <laughs> yeah yeah no i think his latest paper was kind of talking about this concept of uh, if, if I got this right, sort of these indicator species, like one species, if it's conserved, kind of like represents a, a surrogate of, of species and kind of he sort of examined, you know, um, that one species approach and kind of landed a little bit more on when sort of various groups and stakeholders get together and work on conservation across a spectrum of species, the results are typically better than than the one species umbrella type approach, if I remember them right. Yeah, diversity is always a pretty safe bet, I think, for yeah. these things. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Spread <coughs> your risk. The the media picked up on his stuff and says, according to Doctor Ford, grizzly bears are out and yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did it say? Ditch the ditch the grizzly. Ditch That's the grizzly what it was. in the coal mine, like the yeah. play on the canary in the coal mine. Yeah. <laughs> I just responded with a picture of a grizzly bear on fording. An actual the bear coal actually mine. standing on the coal mine. I was like, no, we can't quite. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they're in the coal mines. Um, so when we were here last time, too, just get a quick little update on this. Um, we were talking a little bit about the issues here in the Elk Valley. Um, so about the, uh, um, the the carcass pits that the, the highways were dumping carcasses on and the issues that had for attracting grizzly bears and stuff. And there's been a few kind of advances in some fencing and the movement of a central carcass roadkill pit. Totally. What's happening there? Yeah, so I, we haven't quite figured out what to call it yet. I think we loosely call it like the bear bunker. And uh, it basically, um, the sort of central spot to dump carcasses is, I guess, no different than the previous plan that you just, uh, you know, it's a central location to drop, drop these carcasses like before, but now it excludes large predators. So it's uh, about a probably 20 by 20 meter exclosure pit made out of concrete, like, you know, big concrete lock blocks that is electric fenced along the top and then has an electric gate on the front. So it's completely electrified and the blocks are two feet wide 
or, or deep, I'd say. So the, there's no digging under. A bear would never dig under a two-foot thing, and it's all compacted, so they couldn't really dig under it anyway. And the carcasses now go in there into a big hole, and it's bear-free. So, um, well, bear and cougar and wolves and all the other things that were eating them. And we've had a couple collared bears that have gone right by the site and, you know, just check it out and keep walking. So early signs suggest that it's been successful. And I think our collaboration was successful. We worked with uh, the Ministry of Transport, who were really supportive of this and doing better. And, uh, yeah, lots of groups. The City of Fernie, our, our mayor here, we're in Fernie right now tonight. And uh, Mayor Ange Quiliza was huge in sort of making this work, sort of helping me... Um, mesh with the government and sort of get this information out so yeah it was a real big group that came together to make it happen ministry of forest lands and natural resource operations too so yeah that's no, good it's good it's so good. something happened on the ground and it's a first pass you yeah. know it's kind of does this work how can we do it better and and again i think what we're going to talk about tonight is obviously the gold standard like let's reduce uh collisions altogether, reduce roadkill but I think this was a good sort of interim solution while we work on these larger issues. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Is that is that new site still at the pit at Olson's? No, so Olson's should be done. Oh, okay. Yeah. And there could still be random carcasses there, but it yeah. probably wouldn't be from main roads. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's now no. safe to take fishing clients there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and so I... <laughs> Except for those old grumpy bears that are set in their ways. Yeah. They're still going to be sitting there going, one of these days, is a dead elk going to show up here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that that's a huge one. That I'm, I'm always amazed that that site was there. You know, like you, Curtis, launching boats there. Um, oh, it was the main input or one of the main boat launches. And there'd be what, at any one day in the summer, probably 10 trucks parked there at least. Yeah, yeah. And the carcasses were within 200 meters and the bears sleeping in the bush were within 500 meters. Like it was, yeah, we we're lucky nothing ever happened there, but I'm glad we kind of nipped it in the butt. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah, that's a good good update uh, for anybody that listened to episode one. We, we touched on that. So, um, hey, everybody, um, thanks for joining in. It's uh, Mark Hall here, your host of the podcast. And Curtis Hall, co-host. And as you heard, we're joined by uh, Dr. Clayton Lamb, and we're in Fernie. We're at his, his place here in Fernie, looking across on the ski hill. And today we're going to drill down on some of the new stuff that, um, that uh, Clayton's working on in um, reducing wildlife highway collisions and it's part of this whole sort of growing field now in road ecology. So what um, <clears throat> what exactly is road ecology? Maybe kind of break that down. Yeah, it's uh, it's a real like you say, it's a pretty newish field, and it it really broke out on its own for some of the I guess novel um, issues that roads present. Mostly, I guess the the transdiscipline um, solutions that are required. It's not just within the mandate of, say, uh, a wildlife agency to deal with highway collisions. You know, you have a whole other government agency, the Ministry of Transport or whatever it may be. So um, that's a big one is that it, it's really this multi-stakeholder approach. And it it also influences well, families like you and me and everybody that use roads. So it's certainly uh, a relatively small footprint, but um, a lot of people are involved in that one little small footprint of highways. And then from an ecology perspective, I think um, it 
it really is one of those things that, again, that tiny small footprint, these paved roads have a, a myriad of influences like demographic effects through um, uh, mortality. And then these sort of behavioral pieces as far as do animals go nocturnal? Um, do they avoid the road at you know different spaces? Or do they just use the road as normal, like as if they don't notice it? And there's interesting things about, say, like even uh, amphibians and reptiles using it to warm up. And yeah, so yeah. it's kind of this little microclimate um, and microhabitat that can either help or, or hinder you depending on um, the way that you use it. I think the evidence sort of shakes out that it's mostly a hindrance and a negative. But I think we'll maybe talk about later. There are some, like all things, there are some wins for some certain species as well. Yeah. Yep. The evidence shakes out mostly negative but there's always a few that kind of make the benefit because it is essentially a new type of habitat so there is going to be some species that that uh, are naturally attracted to it yes yeah i mean it seems seems to be um you know like people are specializing in you know road road ecology and um, wildlife collision mitigation stuff seems to be becoming an actual like job um you know i think there's been a couple of the U.S. states that have, over the last like year and a half or so, have hired people, and that's all their job is about is is highway collision totally. mitigation and and migration corridors and stuff. And yes, and yeah, so it's a it's opening up to be a whole new field of of wildlife management. And I mean, obviously, it's becoming a whole new field because people and wildlife are getting killed the highways highways are becoming more more busy and things are getting getting hit and that's that's leading to a lot of accidents i think what was that a reading there in some of the papers it's around 200 fatalities a year in the united states and like around 25 to just around 30,000 injuries in motor vehicle accidents related to to wildlife vehicle collisions in the united states yeah um, I don't know if, you know, you've got anything different for what's going on in Canada. Um, I just saw one number of around 45,000 accidents a year in Canada. I don't know if that sounds. I, I, you know, I don't know. And it's, and not from a lack of trying. I mean, this is something that obviously be a great stat to put together. And we've been trying hard to do that. And a lot of our work, we want to know like how many collisions happen in the Elk Valley, for example, mm-hmm. like how many deer are hit? How, what does it cost ICBC? But actually getting that data is non-trivial. So um, it's something that we're working on. Working on, yeah. Yeah, they definitely got some good, uh, got a good handle on it down down across the line like they, they do on a lot of stuff. And I mean, here's, here's a few numbers I pulled out. Uh, they said like uh, a collision with a deer is in the neighborhood of about 8,000 US, like in costs. Um, elk is about twenty five thousand, and a moose is forty five thousand dollars. Yeah, you know, and everything from property damage through to the to the injuries that are associated with those. So, um, those numbers would obviously be a lot higher in Canada because um, of the do- dollar exchange. But that that's some that's some big numbers, and that's obviously the you know maybe the driver behind. Oh yeah, no, there's a big economic argument here. I mean. Those numbers, uh, the numbers that I heard for the states, uh, that those all sum to about eight billion yeah, annually. Eight billion dollars worth of 
of uh, costs. Yeah. Yeah. So there's some pretty pretty just, big incentives from wildlife. Yeah. yeah. Wildlife vehicle collisions. Holy. It's and huge. even one of the things that, you know, and I think they said it's between one and two million large animals a year, not not counting little little stuff. And every one of those accidents that hurts people or kill people doesn't even always involve a direct impact with wildlife because they're including the people that like swerve to miss yes. and then lose control of the vehicles. The animals might be fine, but yeah. it's still a wildlife motor vehicle Totally related collision. So, um, and it's a bit like the states are different for well a number of reasons. One, like they have ten times more people than Canada, but they also don't have the megafauna that we do. Like the whole eastern side of the states doesn't have all the large, really expensive collision animals that we do. Are not quite the volume. So, you know, we have fewer people, but I'd be pretty sure that Canada would hit more large, complete truck wrecking species than in the state. Yeah, I think I think I saw some of the ones like in Virginia and stuff like with their white-tailed deer populations the the numbers were like astronomical in the hundreds of millions of dollars of damage cuz yeah, they got yeah. so many free lots of people tails. lots of deer but they're still at that kind of 8k per collision range, yeah. you know, whereas here in the Elk Valley, I mean, about uh like about a third of the collisions are with elk. The okay. other half are with deer, and then, you know, the rest are made up with a bunch of other things. There's sheep getting hit and uh, some moose, yep. but lots more elk than other places, you know. I remember a long time ago, I was on an airplane, and the fellow sitting beside me was like a representative for um, like a trucking association. He was headed down to the Vancouver for meetings, and he was telling me like with the new transport trucks all being made out of fiberglass on the front end for um, like reducing the weight and the low hoods that they have now uh -huh. that um, impact with a moose is enough to actually write the tractor unit off. It wow. totals it because it does so much damage to the engine and the, and the carriage and stuff. Holy. Just, you know, the way insurance works, they just write the trucks off. It's 500, you know, whatever, $5 million truck or whatever yeah. the tractor trailer units are worth. Oof. I don't know if they're worth that much, but, or, you know, yeah. whatever, half a million bucks. Um, gets get written off right just from from one animal so yes that's why you see a lot of them have those big grills on the front uh, one of the papers i was reading said just here in southeastern bc in the U east kootenays was talking like may around but estimates between 12 and 1600 animals a year yeah killed on on the highways yeah that was from our our from your yeah your report. Uh, your report yeah and that 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 doesn't even include the rail not at all that's just and the highway and that's only that's specifically in main roads operating units. So it's kind of like southeast East Kootenays, like it's south of Radium, and then this Elk Valley zone. Okay. But it's it's not even the whole East Kootenays. Okay. So, and a very high proportion of those are on Highway Three between Cranbrook and the Alberta border. Yeah, I some think. of them. There's also, I mean, there's yeah, there's a number of highways within that. There's also 43 to Elkford and all those other highways. So there's probably only about like three to four hundred, I think, on highway three itself because okay. they get added up through all the other highways as well but the whole number is an underestimate we're pretty sure because that's the number that Maynard actually physically picks up picks up but a whole bunch of animals um could get scavenged bears could pull them off before people get them which we know happens but also more likely a lot of animals get hit like winged and then head off and die in the bush and we certainly see that with more robust animals we see that with grizzly bears for sure. We've never had a bear hit on the side of the road that died. Like, 
they get hit and they go pile up in the bush like a kilometer away with broken pelvises and somewhere else. A deer is obviously a little more of a fragile creature, but um, undoubtedly there's more sturdy creatures like moose and, and elk that get hit and head off and then die. Yeah, no, it's um, it's it's definitely a, something that's on the radar of, you know, lots of people that live in, in this part of the province because so many people driving the highways, like, see that. I know when I lived in Jaffrey driving back and forth to Cranbrook, I mean, sometimes it was three elk a day, you know, each morning you head in and there's three new totally. carcasses on a 50-kilometer stretch of highway and it was like, it bothers you. Like you go to work and you're just kind of like you're messed up for a bit, right? Because yeah. it's just sick, sick to see. So it's uh, there's there's a lot going on. Well, it's something that can really unite people too. Like it's a commonality. You can ask a room of people if they've ever hit an animal or they know somebody, especially in this part of the province, and everybody will put up their hand in that whole room. And I and I say that because I actually uh, Randall McNair from from Wildsight here in town. He did that to a room of people, and the whole room put up their hand. It was, there was 40 people in that room. And it, I think it's a great way to sort of drive home that message. I mean, what other things can you ask people that all get behind you and, yeah. and jump on board, and your message is pretty solid from there on out? Not, and not a single one of those people would have wished that it, it had happened. No, so. no, it's not. Like, it's certainly not a divisive <laughs> question. Like, if you ask people, do you want to reduce wildlife collisions like do you want to head down the highway safer and do you want animals to be able to cross safer like that's something everybody can get behind absolutely yeah now i mean direct mortality to animals and of course people like uh you know on road road corridors is kind of one of the you know the the most obvious impacts that uh road corridors and highways have you know on wildlife but it it'd be good to kind of touch on on more aspects of of road corridors and their impacts on wildlife because because there is just more than that right what are yeah what are some of the other so impacts to wildlife yeah the so i guess we could just sort of go through them like you say the direct mortality actually getting struck um that itself cascades into usual into usually sort of like a genetic effect so that mortality basically creates a barrier where it becomes hard to cross that linear feature being the highway and it effectively starts to separate populations on either side of the highway. They, they're not really populations. They should, should be one whole group of animals, but that highway and that mortality basically creates this, this rift between these two groups of animals and creates these two groups. And you can detect genetic signatures across a highway. Um, we can see it in bears, wolverine. Um, they're seeing sheep, a lot of species. Um, that should be highly mobile. These animals can move lots, but um, and they're not necessarily unable to cross the highway. They can cross the highway, but that mortality piece basically limits um, the gene flow. Right. So that's that kind of cascades directly from the mortality. Uh, and another piece that I think stems from the mortality is habitat avoidance. So whether animals are perceiving the risk of the highway and avoiding the highway, or the highway kills all the animals that are sort of these more bold type animals and it leaves sort of this shy sort of personality or behavioral syndrome. But you can basically, you can measure an avoidance of highway uh, corridors by many species, elk, uh, bears, wolverine, all these sort of indicator type big game species that we like to ask these questions of. Um, 
And that distance can be 100 meters from the highway and it can be up to 1500 meters from the highway. So that zone of influence of this, you know, two lane highway or th four lane highway, which are, you know, like 50 meters wide or just sort of spitballing here, but they're not very big. Yep. That zone of influence can be a kilometer and a half, 1500 meters. So um, big landscape effects, especially if you, it, you know, BC doesn't have as many highways of, as Alberta say, but you start looking at putting that buffer around highways and it starts to become quite a big area yeah. that the highway's influencing. Yeah, especially in the southern <coughs> southern half of BC, we definitely got more Correct, yeah. highways and connector highways and cutoff highways. If exactly. The more you move north, it's kind of, you either got the Alaska Highway or the Cassiar exactly, Highway and nothing yeah. in between, so. I don't know um, if you saw, there was a, I just saw on the news that there was proposals for a new highway um, to bridge the, off Highway 1. Did you see that going through Banff? No, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, I just saw it on the news. I, it seemed more of like a pipe dream, but it was a, a connector that would basically drop four hours off the trip to Kamloops, I think. And yeah, anyway, so these, these the highway network is also not static. Yeah. doesn't mean that would go through, but people are looking at new ways to connect highways to make it more efficient for people to move. But that has influences on wildlife for yeah, sure. Definitely. And, a, and an already kind of <clears throat> stressed and pressured wildlife. And we, we had talked before kind of, and I, you know, some people are probably familiar with, you know, the concept of road density and how in the back country, like more logging roads, um, more industrial roads is that the, the, the network of those roads increase the same thing when those roads are busy. Um, the same thing is happening where these buffer zones are being created uh, around them that wildlife, you know, can tend to avoid those areas. And it's the same thing with the highways, right, where where you get up to a certain number and, like, just wildlife just stop being, using vast areas of yeah. of the landscape. So the highways are, are, are no different. Well, and like you kind of said about... Uh, road ecology coming out of its own discipline. There's so many really intricate factors that can influence the ecology of crossing and habitat use. So um, a good example is like you say, traffic volume, all highways are not created equal. They can look the same, but it really depends on the volume of traffic for how those animals will use it. And a non-intuitive one is when they twin a highway, um, that you would sort of imagine that if traffic volume stayed the same, then the crossing should be about the same or the mortality should be about the same. But uh, what what happens is when you have a single lane highway, cars get stacked up basically, you know, behind a semi or whatever. So you have these sort of empty spots and then a whole line of cars, which is the whole reason to twin it. So you don't have that, but yep. that creates space for wildlife to cross. Okay. Whereas when you twin, you basically have free flow of traffic and there's always a car at any one time. There's no big gaps on these busier highways. So the same thing, you could be passing the same number of people, but by twinning it, you now create a harder crossing area for, for wildlife and things that I, I aren't, they're intuitive once you hear them, but I wouldn't really think about them as an engineer or something like that. As I was designing that highway, it would just, it only makes sense in retrospect. Yeah, no, wow, that's, that's, that's really interesting. <laughs> and of course, when they twin highways and put the passing lanes in, then the speed at which everybody's traveling inches up which has got to sure. play into speed's a big one stopping distances and yeah yeah huh crazy um 
Now, I'd, I'd read something, too, that road corridors, we, we talked about this or, earlier, the actual altering of that habitat, even though a portion of it's paved, you end up, like, opening it up. You have, like, grassy shoulders and shrubs, and, like, it's creating a different type of habitat than, you know, the adjacent land. Yes. Some wildlife like that, um, so it becomes preferable habitat, and then they become um, more vulnerable to being hit, and then, of course, that's favorable habitat that's now unoccupied. So it's pulling animals in and then just yeah. rinse, repeat. And uh, so the highways themselves can become like a sink for, for drawing in animals and, and totally. squishing them. Yeah, yeah. That, that roadside habitat is viable habitat for animals. And, they're, and kind of in the spirit of there being some wind, you... That you see some animals use the the roadside to their advantage, one for feeding, but also for predator avoidance. I think that the there is some evidence that the the avoidance of those roadways is a bit stronger for large predators. So like your wolves, like your grizzly bears, like your cougars, and so uh, you know, for example, a moose would go and calve beside a road, so to avoid that early neonate predation. So. That's not necessarily every moose would do that, but there's observations of behaviors of animals actually then selecting for those roads. Um, doesn't mean that that calf survives and doesn't get run over by a semi or whatever, but those are the kind of cues that these animals are picking up on to try to survive better in those landscapes. But again, it doesn't always work out. You eat the green grass, seems good, and then you get hit just because you, know, you cross at the wrong time or you get spooked or they twin the highway or whatever it is. Yeah, so yeah. it's a complicated landscape for those animals to try to navigate and figure out the, for them to balance their kind of risk and reward landscape for themselves. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's, you know, part of that risk versus reward thing, especially for like elk and deer, um, you know, those highway shoulders, you know, have all been grass seeded with, you know, artificial grass seed and clover and all this kind of stuff, which is at the end of the day, it's like better stuff than they can get off the native ecosystem. So what a great place, you know, to winter. Yeah. Um, South facing slopes, get a little bit of sun. I remember when did we have the really, really bad droughty season? You know, where they almost like were shutting down the rivers for fishing and stuff. That 2015. Was, yeah. Yeah. It was a bad fire year, yeah. too. Yeah. Well, I remember that winter, <clears throat> the amount of elk that were on the sides of the highway. Yes. Like eating, like in late November, early December, it was just, I'd never seen anything like it. And what I, my hypothesis was, is that drought was so hard on the native grasses and stuff like that there was virtually like zero calories yeah. And the agronomic grasses that they put on, you know, the clovers and stuff probably fared better. Yeah. And, and um, the, just the so ditching, they just, like they even just went <coughs> ditching. Just the fact yeah. It's all ditched. A little bit of moisture. So little, it. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it was just insane the amount of animals that were, that were on the highway the winter after that summer drought. And it's something to always remember is that the over long periods of time, these animals should be relatively well adapted to their landscape. But, like, you know, these highways are so such a small blip in the, their evolutionary history, you know. So, for example, when you think about ecological traps or source sinks or all these things where, you know, if they're eating grass and dying beside the road, over long, long periods of time, they should either figure it out 
or that basically that approach won't work you know mm -hmm. the animals that live there that lose all their cows eventually that will be selected out would be the idea but these things are just blips in the evolutionary history you know these highways have been around for well, i don't actually even know but like less than 200 years <laughs> i know that yeah and so it, that's just that's nothing there's there's hardly any capacity for those animals to say evolve to that so the, it's pretty limited what they can really do in response. Like individuals can figure it out, but that's kind of where, you know, we're always hesitant to, to act per se and like, you know, make a problem worse by, you know, um, trying to help sometimes. But I do think that it's pretty reasonable to suspect that there are times where these animals are not going to figure it out in time and it is reasonable to, to act. Yeah. 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 I mean, and that always, <clears throat> brings in the question, you know, where people feel like um, these types of mortalities or these types of pressures on wildlife that are caused by people um, are not part of the, you know, the grander scheme of what nature has designed for them. And so we have an obligation to try to erase our backtracks as much as possible and lift, lift our influence off of them. And, yep. you know, I think people... Most people would see that as a bit of a moral obligation that, yeah, <clears throat> that we've got to cut down on. I think a big one, like it's sort of no different than say uh, an environmental assessment for a coal mine or something like that. It's more of trying to move forward with wildlife in mind. So, you know, if you're going to build a coal mine, there's a formal environmental assessment process, and then how you mitigate those effects. We don't really do that for highways or i guess we haven't really built big highways in canada in this new era of thinking like that so i think moving forward as you know highways get twinned and as opportunities come up to do projects with wildlife in mind that's kind of i think the future we're hoping mm -hmm. for and that's kind of that's the spirit in which we've approached this problem not say going to the ministry of transport saying well you have to solve this because i think society that wasn't a that wasn't a priority when we built all of these highways but it is now and trying to think of how we can how we can create projects to help solve that but also like where does the funding come from and how do, how do we help these agencies sort of navigate those navigate that stuff yeah, yeah definitely <clears throat> i remember you know what you're saying there about <clears throat> you know the environmental assessment process has never really been applied to you know things like roads or our major highways I had once heard something about like the transnational railroad that we have that connects, you know, the east eastern seaboard to the western seaboard in Canada. Uh, if they had to do that today, it would never they would never be able to do it. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, just because of you know environmental assessments totally. and jurisdictions and private land and all that yes. kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now another thing that I had picked up on, which might be new to people, about one of the impacts of uh, highway corridors, impacts on wildlife, is the actual noise in, in being one of those factors that's forcing animals to be away from the highway. And one of the things that I picked up on was the influence that had on birds. Yeah, especially breeding birds. Yeah, breeding birds. And then there was a little bit of a difference between the response of forested birds versus grassland birds. Mm -hmm. The grassland birds were just slightly more tolerable of a little extra noise. Right. The forest birds weren't, yeah. for obvious reasons, makes sense. But what blew me away is that their sensitivity to move or avoid the highway corridors was around 40 to 50 decibels. Okay. If I, if I read the 
graphs right, which is like, it's like a normal conversation. Oh, wow. Um, your dishwasher uh, is 75 decibels. Wow. I was, and I was like, unless, unless I'm, unless I'm, you know, mixed, missed that, misread that, those graphs, like their sensitivity to the sound on highways was, was quite a bit. So now if I think about what you were talking about, that, that buffer can be, you know, f you know, hundred meters to like a kilometer and a half, yeah. that how far do you have to get from a highway, say in an open grassland yeah. to drop below 40 or 50 decibels right. where yes. a, where a uh, a breeding grassland songbird is like okay this is fine now yeah like that's oh it's a ways that's pretty that's pretty uh sensitive well, i mean we're in we're on the side of the highway right now in my house and the highway's like 200 meters away and you can hear it clear as day through a window when i'm in bed like yeah. so it goes a long ways when I, when I was looking up trying to see what 40 to 50 decibels were one of the things on the charts was uh um a boom car is 145 decibels. Okay. And so a boom car, I figure, is one of those ones where the kid stops at the stoplights <laughs> and it's like <laughs> going on inside the car. That's 145 <laughs> decibels. So, <clears throat> anyways, yeah. that's why there's no songbirds around those cars. What do you think about you know Curtis living in furniture? Do you think about the train that oh, blows? Man. Like I can hear the train up on the top of the ski hill, which is yeah. like 10 <laughs> kilometers away and 5,000 feet higher. Yeah. yeah, and we got a railroad track in yeah. the valley bottom of every yeah every valley, and we got to honk the horn at every unmanaged crossing. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, there's lots of effects. Um, yeah. and then kind of another <clears throat> a couple other things about like the impacts of road corridors. You sort of mentioned this about like they actually attract animals, like like the the reptiles, uh, amphibians, like snakes and stuff, because you got the warm pavement. They're yes. kind of like, oh, we like this. This is good for us until we sleep too far out from the white line, I guess. Yes. And then salt, um, obviously, is another attractant. That's a huge one. You know, they're yeah. the risk versus reward thing. I mean, we see it with sheep um, just south of town here in, in the rock cuts by Elko, right? Yeah. Like, they will stand there, run out of the way, and then turn around as soon as the car goes and run back right out and start totally. looking at salt. Like, it's... See it everywhere. All the national them. parks, the Okanagan, like even Muncho, you know, up those stone sheep up there. The sheep are always on the side of the highway. It's a big problem. And then uh, the other big issue, um, I know it's a big thorn and a lot of people's sides here are the high fences, the elk fences mm -hmm. on private land is really, like those are right adjacent to highway. The private property is right, you know, right along the, the highway right away. And now there's these 12 foot fences for like s huge stretches, like up by Skookumchuck there. Yeah. And completely messing up elk and herds getting blocked in the middle of the highway. And yes. And even, um, even the new barbed wire fences that highways are constructing now are becoming barriers to wildlife getting oh, yeah. across. And I've seen that. Um, you know, by Cranbrook, they got these five-strand fences. You know, they're a much higher than a than a range wildlife fence. They're like upwards of 50 inches. Yeah. The bottom wires are are like six, eight, ten inches off the ground. Five strands, and they're almost impenetrable to to smaller wildlife. And I used to see like these calf elk every morning that the herds crossed, 
and two or three calves that are stuck on the other side of the right of way they can't get across and yeah and um i mean that's definitely a big a big impact i mean i can understand they want to keep cattle from getting out on the highway and killing people but we're also preventing and those those high fences are really only a problem under the context that you sort of said them when they're not part of a wildlife mitigation strategy because that high fence is the exact way that you solve this problem as well yeah you know so yeah when uh there's not open ends on them you know so wildlife can get in on either side and then they basically just pinball between those two high fences and get hit on the highway that's obviously a problem that's the situation you described but when they're you know, done over long uh, stretches of highway so the um, animals can't get in and then they're bridged with uh, wildlife overpasses or wildlife underpasses, those exact same, you know, eight-foot page wires are basically what saves those animals. So it's really about uh, how they're used. Yeah. But when they're being put up to protect agriculture crops, um, there's no... Um, no consideration for that no planning it's just it's put up wherever wherever the private land is and and it's in a few places as you know in this part of the world it's had a fairly significant impact on where elk traditionally crossed and where they can't and yeah it takes them a while to sort it out and i think that's what happens right is it causes these big clusters on the highways of two or three hundred elk that are like all of a sudden weirded out because they can't they can't get across and of course that causes uh causes more accidents and i think looking forward like if we were to go ahead with some meaningful mitigation for wildlife in the kootenays you just tie right into those fences there's there's thousands of dollars of savings by just because those fences are right up against the highway in a lot of cases and that's just part of your mitigation fence just tie right into it and there's you know a free 500 meters of fencing (laughs) <clears throat> and then uh, build a wildlife overpass, overpass into the agriculture uh, field. Right? <laughs> they can just go back and forth between the field, <laughs> that field, and the. <laughs> that's uh, there's honestly there's actually people that would think that would be that would be a good thing. So, <laughs> you know, and then I think another thing, it's it's worth touching on about like the impacts to wildlife is, you know, the focus always tends to be on the big. You know charismatic megafauna right but yeah i mean all the little things that get hit maybe that sometimes don't people don't see and i know in this part of the world like we got the painted turtle that goes on these epic like cross land migrations between bodies of water in the in the early summer for breeding and i don't know how many times i've been on these busy highways at five o'clock at night they're dodging traffic to Get not a very well poor turtle off the road that's it's <laughs> it's trying to make it across so yeah <laughs> well lots of species i mean i you know i always go back to there's a there's a paper by uh, lenore Ferrig from eastern canada and it basically summarizes what the influence on species or what the influence roads have on species abundance because i think at the heart of it what you really want to know like if we build this road or if i live beside this road does this road create fewer animals mm-hmm. and like even if they avoid it and all those things if there's the same number of the animals in the landscape i could also i'd kind of be fine with that like but the real question is does it reduce abundance and it's a really neat summary because it it shows sort of where the winners and losers are and um and how they differ so you know like you say the large mammals are almost always negatively 
affected by roads. So abundance almost always goes down right. by roads. And that's, you know, that's consistent with our grizzly research, uh, wolverine research I've done, pretty well everything. Um, but the things that do relatively well are um, rodents. So when you talk about small things, um, their abundance increases. So, you know, partly due to that road being cleared, uh, partly due to these predator buffers. Um, doesn't mean they don't still, because they're more abundant there, they would see high mortality, but overall they increase. Um, reptiles and amphibians go down as a result of roads. Um, medium-sized mammals kind of do either no effect or slightly negative. And then birds are all over the place. Like mm. you say, there's these negative effects from uh, uh, from noise and stuff, but you see scavengers like vultures and things like that actually go up in abundance. So there is sort of these wins and losses, and I guess overall the losses are in the large mammals, uh, some of the birds, and uh, in the amphibians. Okay. And then there's sort of these mixed effects in some of the birds, uh, medium-sized mammals, and then the the winds are in the small mammals. Huh. So yeah, it, that's that's kind of the also the heart of where road ecology came from. There's a whole microsystem that popped out of this disturbance yeah so it's yeah. neat with with winners and losers yeah yeah i mean yeah that that is interesting and i and i know what you were telling us in episode one like about um you know about grizzly bear ecology is is there a grizzly bear's rate of repro- replacing itself on the landscape their job of reproducing and and rearing an offspring to when it becomes breeding age um is one of the slower Oh, yeah. of of our our wildlife in this this part of the world so yeah one animal in a large area of the landscape that gets hit on the highway can have a a pretty significant impact but like if you run over a columbia ground squirrel right like a colony beside the road with like four thousand more so well yeah that was sort of when they in that paper they talked about that uh animals with small territories low movement rates and high mm-hmm. re- reproductive rates were the ones that did better near the highways. And like that, I think that fits, but it also is probably not the species that we think about a lot as well. You know, those are the mice, those are the, you know, not, they're not wolverines and grizzly bears and caribou and elk and moose. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Those species are all the opposite of that. (laughs) (laughs) Reproduce slow, they move a lot, they have big ranges. Yeah. Well, Curtis is a huge fly fisherman. Like, do you freak out when there's like a big caddis hatch and then they're splatting all over your windshield of your truck? Like, are you like, oh, those are for the fish? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Yeah, are selected. That's less cutthroat <laughs> trout. Going to survive. Stop hitting the bugs. <laughs> Probably just reaching out the window trying to match the hatch. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Scraping them off the grill. <laughs> but I mean, it, I mean, it is. It is, yeah, I mean, it's a bit funny, but I mean, I remember going through the the valley here one night in the dark in the springtime, and there, I didn't know they were here, but there's, I don't know if they're the Luna Moth or those, oh. the, the ones that are like as big around as your, your hand. Yeah. And there was a hatch of them oh. at nighttime, and they would be like in the headlights of the truck kind of floating across and I'm like, those are the slowest bats I've ever seen, right? <laughs> and it's like, you don't want to bounce one of those off the windshield. No. And it wasn't until afterwards I was like, oh, those are those great big, huge moths. So, 
One species we didn't touch on, I think mostly because we don't have a lot of them here, but uh, is badgers. Yeah, yeah I, I gonna do actually yeah. have that one there. I know you, there are some here in, in the, the Elk, Elk Valley. Valley. Yeah. I've seen them up around Lion Creek. Yes, that's where they are. Big Ranch. Um, that's the only has, spot that I know. Yeah, yeah, I've seen them right at the turnoff to the Lion Creek um, operation yeah. mine there. Huge, huge big male badger there one time. Um, but yeah, so when you move out into the Rocky Mountain Trench, um, there is a lot more... Badgers. They are an endangered species. species the subs the, the, the East Kootenai subspecies of the American badger is is endangered and well the whole, I think the whole badger across BC is like even the um the Kamloops variety. Yeah. Yeah, uh, they're yeah. all endangered. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But if you go over into Alberta, just the straight old plain American badgers not. Yes. Yeah. So so yeah, highway mortality. We got all the flavors over here. Yeah, we do. We <laughs> we, we um well it's here in BC, I don't know if it's a good thing if you get labeled as an endangered species because it's yeah yeah um, <laughs> no act yeah it's it's a it's a you're put on death row but I, I know Trevor Kinley had done like lots of work here in the Kootenays on the badgers and stuff and um, um, some of his work talked about like highway mortalities and there was a, a place um, just between Jaffrey and Cranbrook near the area they call Rampart or Mayook, yeah. where he'd identified a very frequent crossing and lots of mortality. And so they put one yeah, of those. Yeah, there's a sign there. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, except they put up the Badger Crossing sign. and I, I, I think it's gone. Oh, yeah, it's it is. gone now. Larry yeah. Ingham, the biologist that was working on that when he was with the uh, Fish and Wildlife Compensation Program, they were helping fund that. Um, he lived in Jaffrey, and then he'd go home at nighttime, and he'd... he'd put up the signs and stuff and finish his day job off, go home, go to work the next morning, and they're gone. Oh, people loved them. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so they just said, forget it. But they, they put up the little drift fences there yes. for the badgers yeah. uh, along the highway, and then they got them um, little, like, little trap doors to funnel them so that they would use the culverts. Because yeah. apparently if, if the culverts, regular highway drainage culverts, are in good shape and the ends aren't crunched down from the snow plows, the badgers will use those yeah um but yeah i mean that's a that's a pretty pretty significant uh wildlife species to be be running over on the highway and yeah. i found a few of them me too yeah and yeah. uh adam ford when he first started at uh, ubc okanagan that was one of the first pictures he took of a dead badger right beside ubc o campus yeah so yeah no it's big um there's, there was a study in uh around kamloops there in the interior and they collared 13 badgers and seven of them died, and six of them were from road mortalities. Wow. So it's huge. Like, it, that was the by far the dominant source. Oh, sorry, it was road and rail. But, you know. Okay. Yeah, those together. Um, huge source of mortality. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if this has, you know, been proven through through studies, but one of the theories I heard with, with the badger uh, is because of the dynamics in the Rocky Mountain Chet, uh, trench uh, with the fire ecology, the fire systems changing, more forests growing, growing thicker, grassland habitat is shrinking into these smaller and smaller patches that the male badgers, the breeding male badgers, are having to travel a lot more on the landscape to get to these small prime grassland habitats to find the females, yeah. which have smaller home range, just kind of a miniature version of the wolverine, almost yeah. the sort of the way I, I pictured totally it. Are, yeah. um, 
so that was putting them at higher risk, adult males, because they were having to travel these distances, was, which was making them crisscross the highways. Yeah. And yeah, really that's what I found. When I found a badger, they've been, been a big male yeah. badger. I was hunting uh, sheep one time in the valley, and I was up at 7,500 feet, and a badger came over the pass from Alberta and was scrambling through the talus, like way up there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had to look twice. I just, I've always seen badgers in this, you know, grassland, cattle pasture type habitat, and I couldn't believe it. Yeah, yeah I think Nancy there. Newhouse's work when they sh she first document started documenting where they were occurring here in the East Kootenays, yeah. they found them in every basically every single habitat type that we have <laughs> right to the Alpine. Yeah. yeah, I submitted my observation to that. They had that kind of citizen science monitoring program, and yeah, yeah, I I, I found one way out in the backcountry one time in the deep snow in November deer hunting, and yeah. I looked at her map and all the clusters are in the valley, and then there's this one way off <laughs> on, <laughs> out in space. You're the outlier. <laughs> So um, tell us a little bit about the um, the Highway 3 um, corridor project that you're working on. Yeah, so um, the the Highway 3 corridor has been a focus of sort of hoping for conservation um, mitigation, highway mitigation for probably about 20 years. So well before I was ever part of this game. Uh, but more recently, I think tides have been changing. Um, and there's a little bit more motivation to, to do something, I think, proactive in regards to highway mitigation. And that came about for a number of reasons, like usual. I think that we had a little more data. You know, we collected, we, we colored 40 grizzly bears and record, or no, actually 60 grizzly bears, sorry, and recorded 40,000 relocations of them. So we had a really good idea of where bears were crossing and had a bunch of bears hit by the road, by the highway. Um, the Sparwood uh, Club, the Sparwood District Fish and Game Club, uh, sponsored the coloring of elk um, from 2016 until basically right now. In the Upper Elk Valley here. Yeah, yep. really from like almost here, like Hosmer type area all the way to the Upper Elk. And they colored 76 elk and it was it was exclusively funded, um, well, at least partly by the, the Sparwood Club. So yep. it was really this kind of awesome hunter-led initiative where they wanted to understand uh, how these elk were dying, um, how they were surviving, what habitats they were using, and whether they were migratory or not. So those two data sources gave us a lot of information on where animals were moving and sort of the impact of highway. And it, I think it reignited that conversation. And then, of course, you know, there's different things going on in the valley. There was a cumulative effects analysis. Um, you know, there was a bunch of more coal mines coming up. And so it kind of hit a critical mass. We had a lot of information and we had interested people. Um, and we had some pressures that were accumulating on the landscape. So the Highway 3 project, I think, got going probably in full steam about like a year and a half ago. Okay. And it was really this sort of, um, it was a nexus of the, the Kootenai Conservation Partnership that brought us all together and Roadwatch BC as well. And so a huge group of us, so myself kind of on the science side, uh, Dr. Tony Clevenger, who's a, a connectivity expert across the globe and he lives in Canmore. He was really part of the Banff um, yeah. crossing structure project. Yeah, every research paper you read about exactly. the Banff stuff has got his name it's on it. It's all Tony, and Tony's amazing. Yeah, he's just it's really privileged to work with him. And then all kinds of really interested uh, parties in this issue. So Ministry of Transport, uh, Flunro, and then a bunch of environmental groups like Wadawai and Wild Sight and Mistakis. And everybody came together, and we kind of 
hash out a plan. Like one, how do we do this? Is it worth doing? Uh, when do we do it? Where do we do it? And why? And I, I think that when we went through this sort of rigorous process that it really hit home that this is the place to do it. I think that we also all are pretty confident this is probably the most significant conservation corridor for wildlife in North America. There's really nowhere else that is like as tightly funneled and has as many pressures as right here. Yeah. So, and actually has as little mitigation. So there's I nowhere mean, it's else. A, it's 150 kilometers of highway, um, excluding uh, the highway up to Elkford, that basically crosscuts the Rocky Mountains. Totally. From from the western slopes over to Alberta. So, yes. So the whole issue of you know um, wildlife moving you know through the Rocky Mountains, they have communities and railroads, and then all the coal mines to kind of like in a very like fairly narrow width of Rocky Mountains here and oh, then it's this totally highway narrow. that pierces through it as well and yeah and a bunch of towns and and no protected areas which is not necessarily a problem that's also what you know people value the sort of multi-use landscape but it does create no sort of in contiguous untouched areas so the whole landscape is sort of has a human footprint on it mm. and then you place that highway that cross cuts it in the middle and you know, to the south, you have um, the Glacier National Park. So that's a, you know, big, intact, connected area. Uh, to the to the southeast of the Flathead, you have Waterton National Park. And then, you know, even south of those, you have uh, the Yellowstone Park. There's kind of these great, like, jumping or stepping stones for these animals to, you know, move up and down the rocky chain. But there's really nothing until you hit Banff again. Yeah. Yeah, so Kootenai, this Kootenai is national park could be yeah the farthest south so, yeah. yeah sorry you hit Kootenai and then Banff and then Jasper into that whole complex but we're kind of in this this chasm of not much protection and a lot of impact yeah so and also a lot of wildlife like we have all the big species except bison and caribou basically and you know we got bighorn sheep we got elk we got wolverine we got grizzly bears we got all the all the critters yeah so there's also a lot to lose as well if we don't get after it. Um, so that's sort of where it really hit home for all of us. And and the Valley is an awesome place because um, we have a lot of really committed partners. You know, part of that disturbance is a challenge, but it's also in some ways an opportunity. You know, tech's been amazing to work with. They, they understand that they have a disturbance on the landscape. But I mean, personally and like professionally, I found them to be great partners to try mm -hmm. to um try to so work with that's that's tech that owns and operates five five major coal mines here in the elk valley yeah yeah so you know tech's at the table and a, and a bunch of interested groups that you know want to do better for the valley in which they operate and they live and so that's sort of the general uh high level idea of why here and why now okay. and then what it really looks like operationally is um we we sort of coined it the, the safe passages for people and wildlife. So I think that's really what we want to get at. It's not just about getting people along the highway, and it's not just about getting wildlife across. It's really about getting both and doing it safely. We just need people to, we want people to go along the highway, and we want people to, or wildlife to go across the highway, yeah. you know? And um, we want both groups to be able to do that safely. So that would really look like it's, it's a relatively simple um, procedure. You fence the highway with par with page wire, 
and you create opportunities for animals to go across the highway. So that's either in these sort of big span overpasses, which are really just uh, like an upside down culvert over the highway with dirt on it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All the engineers yeah. will cringe, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's really, you know, it's it's a dirt overpass. So it yeah. just means that the landscape, as the animals are walking up to it, they hit a page wire fence and they can't get across. And then they're funneled into this overpass and just walk over on dirt and there's trees and there's veg and it's just, it's a landscape to them. Yeah. Um, and then there's underpasses. Underpasses are um, slightly easier to build. They're cheaper but they don't work as well. So they're like everything, nothing's for free around here. Like yeah. you don't get easier and cheaper and better, <laughs> yeah. but um, they work better for some species. And I think like everything, a diversity is better. So having some overpasses and some underpasses just to have a lot of opportunities to pass. Okay. And the underpasses usually come as sort of a culvert type structure, but not the kind of like, small culverts you're thinking of like they're culverts that you and i could walk through yeah, standing yeah, they're, up they're big yeah, yeah they're yeah. huge and i think the research is pretty solid that um openness is a huge thing for kind of at least if we're thinking of the large species that we're probably thinking about crossing like grizzly bears and elk and things like that they the bigger the culvert the better sort of the wider the span the overpass the more like it flares out to open up on the edge of the highway like anything that makes it feel not constrainy i think is better right and that that seems to have that sort of um uh process seems to be pretty standard for elk and for moose and for grizzly bears where which are most of the species that we have data for right i think i was reading in one of dr ford's papers um that he's involved in some of the stuff in banff national park is that um the overpasses <clears throat> compared to under underpasses were were selected more for family groups. So if it was grizzly bear with cubs, deer with herd of elk, yeah. they tended to like the overpasses where single animals of those species kind of would use either, but yes. they were okay with the underpasses, like a lone sub-adult grizzly bear or whatever. Yeah. Whereas uh, a sow with cubs would maybe want to use the overpass or s would would preferentially select it if it was there. So yeah, interesting. Yeah. That seems to be how it works. And but the like the crossings per structure basically are sort of not comparable between a an overpass and an underpass. Like just the raw numbers of animals per year that would yeah use it? per structure. Like okay, you know if you do it on a per structure basis because there's always more underpasses usually because they're cheaper and easier to put in but you know it'd be five or ten times more crossings on the overpass, overpass. compared to the underpass <clears throat> so your bang for your buck is better with a it i think it becomes almost similar in some ways because you can do so many more underpasses okay and i think you know like i say it's about that diversity thing of having some overpasses because you don't want to just select for the singletons you know, you could do a whole highway of underpasses, but if females with cubs can't cross, then that's not really getting at that sort of uh, dispersal functionality of the landscape that we want to reestablish. So, yeah, a diversity of those structures is good. And that's what we kind of have gone for on the Highway 3 project. So um, it it's not like the Banff project where, you know, it's a big cash flow type project. It's more of like a grassroots type. We We have the science, we know what to do, but we also are working within sort of a more realistic type budget where 
bunch of scientists and keen people that you know want to do well but we're not a national park yeah so that comes i think that creates opportunity to be creative and think about how to do this in an in a new way and so you know the first thing that we're thinking about is retrofitting existing bridges as wildlife underpasses so there's big wide span bridges that are awesome natural travel routes animals love traveling on rivers and by basically making the under the bridge more open and more appealing we can turn those for relatively low dollar value into a wildlife underpass right yeah i saw some of that in um in the 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 instruction manuals from the highways departments down in the u.s that was one of the strategies so like a like a viaduct or or a bridge spanning a river rather than the abutments of the bridge being like right up to the to the edge of the water and then like your protective rock is they're back farther so there's actually like land totally and even maybe f- flattened off a little bit so you your your terrestrial mammals can be walking back and forth on essentially like a path under the bridge and then you've got your stream which is free flowing underneath of that so uh, and I think I even saw in one of them where they retrofitted bridges and they actually put like a platform yeah. because they did have the abutments were too close to the stream. And so th- that's probably more like for smaller mammals and stuff like that. But they could just hop up on the this catwalk basically and scoot yeah. underneath of the bridge. So so that's, so that's good value, those yeah. types of things. And that's exactly kind of where we're heading. And there's even... Um, sort of old abutments from previous bridges that are just, you know, they're left there because it was just, it doesn't matter. It's kind of just sitting there. But of course that narrows the the crossing underneath the bridge. So there's old concrete abutments that we can basically chip out and widen because it's not, the new bridge isn't even sitting on that abutment. Mm-hmm. There's lots of opportunities to make that a little more appealing. The cost then comes in fencing, um, you know, then fencing between those bridges. And then that we do have a, you know, overpass planned in that uh that zone as well okay so and those are not cheap structures i mean overpasses come in the range of sort of like one million to about four to five million depending you know how many uh lanes you have to span if you only have to span two lanes which we have here then it's on the lower end of that and if the terrain is relatively simple which it is here where we want to do it then it's on the lower end but yeah you can go up pretty fast if yeah. you want to no doubt but the the hook for all of this is the economics shake out that it's always cheaper to fix it when there's enough collisions right so the basic idea that is somewhere around like five deer collisions uh per mile or two elk collisions or one moose collision type yeah. thing that's the one i saw from the the nevada um, area seven deer case study is they said, um, or unless this kind of applied across all of the United States, that as soon as you had a stretch of highway that had more than or equal to five deer per mile per year, it was actually more economical, saved society more money to put a crossing structure there than it did to do nothing. Yeah. The it, cost it's, of those It's costing you to exceeded. do nothing yeah. right now. Yeah if you exceed that threshold. And so part of that report that we did is sort of using some of those thresholds and then asking, so where are we breaking that threshold in the Elk Valley? Okay, where, where what sections of highway is yeah. that happening on? Yeah. And 
even that, like I say, is a pretty, it's a crude measure because we don't really know how many animals are dying. So it's always a minimum estimate because, you know, say if, if there's three per kilometer, but we're only getting half of them because the rest are running off and dying, we're getting eaten by grizzly bears before we count them, then there could be six per kilometer. So it's sort of a minimum cost. And because we have struggled to get the ICBC cost to date, because obviously if we had that, then that would be, that's what you really want, is how yep. much did this cost ICBC? Yep. We don't have that yet, but we're working on that. Okay, okay. But that's that's the hook, and I think it's, I, I mean, it's, I think it's a pitch that everybody can get behind and understand that they want, um, they want themselves to be safer on the highway. They want their family to be safer, and they really want wildlife to be safer. Like nobody's enjoying hitting wildlife, and yeah. if you can do all of that, the sort of win-win situation for cheaper. I mean, it's it's a. I think it's a good news story. It's a good. It's 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 kind of what everybody is is hoping for. Yeah. Now, Roadwatch BC was here in Fernie for quite a few years leading a citizen science kind of project uh, on highway collisions. Um, did, did maybe explain that a little bit and did that, the information from that program kind of factor into um, sort of identifying where sort of quote unquote the hot spots on the highways were? Totally, yeah, no, the Roadwatch initiative was awesome. So that was led um, by Mistakis uh, the Mistakis Institute, um, and also through uh, Y2Y and WildSite. And yeah, so Beth Millions was the uh, outreach coordinator here, and then uh, Tracy Lee from Mistakis was a big part of that. And it was a citizen science, citizen science um, initiative to basically crowdsource uh, the sightings of live and road-killed animals on the side of the highway. So people could, when they weren't the driver, they could basically uh tag when they saw an animal denote whether it was or denote the species whether it was live or dead and if it was like crossing or standing on the side of the highway and it it was it was sort of a first pass it was like a a, a pilot of the idea yeah and um sort of later on they got into these routes where you could you know if you were going from uh well you you know from jaffrey to uh Cranbrook every day you could set up a route so it's a little more standardized because these things are always hindered by effort you you know as a data analysis when you get the data back and say all the observations are inside the town limits of Fernie you don't know are there actually more collisions in Fernie or do you have more people reporting within Fernie and not many people are driving to Cranbrook yeah so you kind of get you have these effort problems you don't know how to scale the data but when you then have these uh, the routes, then you kind of, okay, this person drives us every day. And consistently in this kilometer, they always got more roadkill. Yep. That must mean that this is a worse kilometer for roadkill. Yep. You were yeah, a big so that supporter was, of that. It, it was. So, so I, I, I got to put this put, throw this in here. So, yeah, so <laughs> this, this citizen science thing was uh, an app that you downloaded on your smartphone. And so you could basically just, like, open it up, and it was like... Um, submit a report, it was an elk, it was dead on the side of the highway, boom, submit it, that data goes in. So I was using that every single day, driving back and forth for five years between Jaffrey and Cranbrook, and uh, for two years in a row, I was like the leading no question. data inputter into the, into the program. I, I know the focus 
uh, of the pilot project was for the Elk Valley, like Elk, and, but I was on the other side and I was just like, whatever. There's a lot of animals get hit between here and Cranbrook and I'm going to give you the data because maybe somebody will go, holy, totally. we should do something over towards Cranbrook. You're too, probably so. half the data. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was. Um, so we used the, the Roadwatch data in that, um, in the report. Yeah. And we so, so that's cool. I mean, I, I think that's worth highlighting because people are always sort of like, why does nobody listen to us? And, Renal? and, and this to me was a really great example of um, the average just citizen and a smartphone contributing to science yeah. of which those data points were. I mean, there's some, like you said, there's some kind of like, you know, question marks around it and you know but it has a level of value and it's contributing to science and conservation and to work that leads to something that's better for wildlife and people so it's totally uh, so it, it does happen some citizen science does happen oh it was i think it was a valuable resource and it um you know we learned a lot from those data and then also just from the process and all the uh you know really dedicated people that contributed to the project then we're able to learn sort of how would you roll this out in the future? Like we got a bunch of good information now. How would we tweak it in the future? And so, mm. you know, they're doing a similar thing on the Alberta side now, and they have sort of a more dedicated effort um, model to get around that. And you know, it'll maybe roll out again here with that idea now that the pilot of Roadwatch is done. But citizen science is like a totally new frontier, yep. you know, and we're we're learning just like everybody else and. I think that the the Roadwatch BC um, pilot was incredibly successful, and especially for it to be a pilot and to be incorporated into science right away, like in our report, I think that's kind of testament to how how important the citizen science initiative was. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now the other thing uh, I'll ask you about here, if this factored into it, I know it's it, it's you know, wasn't, wasn't part of the Roadwatch BC program, but there were two pilot projects on the Highway 3 corridor with the uh, wildlife detection systems on yep. the highways. So they were pilot projects from the province that basically there was one by Elko and one out in towards the Crow's Nest Pass, yeah, wasn't there? Yeah, by Elkview there. And... Right at the mine. Yeah, that's right, yeah. at the bottom of the Elkview mine. So it's basically like a series of... They were infrared cameras. Yeah, they're flur, on the highways, forward-looking forward infrared. Yeah, that, that's right. And so, if uh, a warm body touched that, like crossed into that or movement, um, it would get picked up by the sensors, and it would turn big signs at each end of the of the wildlife corridor on, and you get a big flashing thing on the road saying that there's wildlife on the road. And then it was recording that data. And then I presumed that then if the animal was still struck within that, then that data point was picked up when the highways went and picked up a dead animal. So, and I believe didn't, didn't that system also have like cameras? So when they were tripped, it was actually video recording sections of the highway so they could validate. Well, the, like the, the FLIR is, basically a video is that it's incredibly high resolution okay it's just like looking at a night vision it's the same like have you ever seen sort of those military yeah. grade ops where they're looking down from a, a helicopter at some guy you on the ground see the little white yeah person running around or like the search and rescue kind yes. of thing there's a guy on the mountain doing the like help me 
it's like that. It's yeah. re- it's really expensive, really high end imagery. Okay. Um, yeah. So I think that those were a good pilot. Um, I think that uh, locally, I think the jury's probably out on if the public likes them. Yeah, and I th- that's uh, I think a big part of what what was kind of kind of um, what throw into the discussion here. So so one were those things more of an actual mitigation tool. Like this is a strategy to warn drivers to hit less animals, or was it a tool that was being implemented to collect data on the frequency of animals being killed on the highway? Yeah, definitely on the mitigation side. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's what I thought because of the the warning flashing sign. So yeah, so yeah, definitely the locals here are like, they don't work. Like I hear that all the time, right? So, and the way I understood that system's supposed to work is. I'm driving along and the flashing sign is on saying there's wildlife on the highway. But four kilometers down the road, a deer hopped over, went across the road and was gone. And that system was activated. It stays on for a certain period of time. If it's not re-triggered, it goes off. Mm -hmm. And I can drive all the way through that whole corridor and not see the animal. And then I'm like, well, that's messed up because there's nothing here yeah so people i believe were experiencing that because they didn't want the system to be so sensitive that as soon as an animal tripped it the light stayed on for like an hour and then people are like well then they're like well we're just going to ignore it and drive fast it was just like they flashed when there was something there and then they went off you know after a minute or whatever so yeah i definitely hear a lot of people thinking that they're they're useless. Yeah. So the Free Press did a, um, I don't know if you saw it, they did a poll on whether people thought that they were working. Oh, no, I didn't see yeah, that. Yeah. The Free Press is just, well, the Fernie Free Press is our local paper. Newspaper. Yeah. And the results were like overwhelmingly negative. I, I can't remember. We could look it up. But it was like 70% plus, I don't feel like these work. But... On the data side, damn! I drove all the way through there and it didn't hit anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've, I've I've driven through both of those a lot. The Elko one more so than than the Sparwood one, but I still drive through the Sparwood one a lot. And there's not a lot of times that I'll drive through there, and like that that sign will be flashing and there's nothing. So most of the time when it is flashing, there is something. No, or, oh, no, okay. the other way. Most yes. of the time when I see it is flashing, there's there's nothing there. Hmm. Not, that, not, not that I agree that like they don't work, yeah. but it's just, just as an observation, I've, I've driven through more. I think that's I the consensus. It. That's been my experience yeah. personally as well. But I, I don't know if you've noticed, but I think that they have gotten better. Like, or at least the the elk view one. I feel like it's been triggering less. So these are just you know, technology. It's just a computer. So you should be able to train it better. And I don't know if they have. But, you know, I, I don't exactly know the mechanisms, but certainly you could train like a machine learning algorithm to figure out what is going on. Like, that's a person on a bike. That's a dude from tech. Uh, that's an elk about to cross. Like, these things, like, Google could definitely do that for you. Well, I, I had the one one time going through Elko, and it was like, when it when they first came up, and the thing was on, it was like, you know, animal on the road, slow down sort of thing, and I come around the corner, and there's some guy standing on the side of the road changing his tire. Yes. Huh. 
Well, so humans, anything warm. Well, you yeah, don't want yeah. to run him over either. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, that so that was in, in their defense. Their um, they had to go through a question of should bikers trigger it, and they could go through all this hassle of figuring out how to make bikers not trigger it, like as warm, slow moving bodies. But they were just like, yeah, bikers should trigger it. Like people should slow down. If there's a biker in here, and that's kind of reasonable. Yeah. But no, I'm more with you that I've gone through there a number of times where there's no biker, no nothing, and. I think there's a neat sort of social science type question of how many times do you have to get like a cry wolf type thing from that detection system before you don't check your speed. Like the first time you see it, you would check your speed. You would reduce your speed. And then maybe the second time you do it again. But like how many times is it you're going to get a false positive until you just go, this thing doesn't work. Yeah. And, and then so, you don't slow down. That's, exactly. That's the danger, right? Then it then it becomes useless. And they have some they have some data that people were slowing down. So they, like, there's a lot of information in that system that's collecting. Like, it's somehow collecting speeds of cars, and then when it goes off and whether there's an animal there. Like, there's a lot of data I've never had access to it, but it, it'd be great to like. There's lots to learn there. Yeah. Um, and people were slowing down when the lights went on. This was early in the days, so. It'd be neat to look at it again after years of sort of maybe false detections or not. Um, so it was working in that regard, but I don't know what it's doing now. I I, I think there's a conspiracy that uh, if you're speeding, they flick that. that <laughs> light on. No, it's just it a wildlife detection. You should go buck forty through it and see what happens. <laughs> so is, when it says wildlife detection system, is it wildlife or wild space life yes. detection? Maybe that's yeah. for speeders. But but I know early on um, when that um, pilot project went in that you could submit reports online. That, and, of course, not everybody would have known this because the word doesn't get out. But if you drove through that and the light was flashing you didn't see something, you could report that. Mm. Then somebody, somewhere, a human, would go back to the time that you said I went through at 9 o'clock at night. They would go back and they would grab that section of video and say, yes, the flights came on. Yeah. They would watch a series of the video to see whether there was an actual animal there. And then they were using that to, to, to calibrate and maybe train, train the system. So one, you could do that. And I did that a few times, like I drove through and there was nothing there. But what they also had on their website, uh, the Ministry of Transportation website, I'll see if it's still up and put it in the show notes, but they've actually got video clips of that night imagery that you were talking about. And there was one in the Elko Rock Cuts where there was a cougar mm -hmm. sitting in the middle of the highway and it tripped the lights. They knew the lights were flashing. And you could see this transport truck winding its way along the rock bluffs. And, of course, the transport truck was going to come around the highway, like around a corner of the rock bluff, and there the cougar were. And the cougar was sitting on its butt in the middle of the highway. And at the last second, the cougar's like, okay, there's a truck coming. Boing, boing. It was gone, out of sight. Truck went by. Guy was probably none the wiser. Yeah. He would have been just like, well, the flashing light was on, and there was nothing there. The system doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I mean, it's, there's just a really in-depth sort of look at this again. I, nobody's done it here, like a real sort of rigorous analysis as far as I know, but of that system. Yeah. In the States, the same kind of idea, these it, light turns on when there's animals type idea with a speed reduction. And, um, the basic result was that you're supposed to go down by about your speed is supposed to decrease by about 15 kilometers an hour when okay. the light came on. 
and people were going down by less than five in the end. And there was no difference um, between mortalities under the um, protection of the flashing lights versus not in the sure. end. So if it doesn't effectively reduce your speed, then it's not really doing that much. So I think that if that system could get a little bit better calibrated, which that's actually relatively cheap, like putting the whole system in is expensive and you know going through all the political red tape to get that system up is the tough part. Now that it's in, fine-tuning it is relatively, that's a that's a data monkeying exercise. Like that's something I could do on my computer. Yeah. So they should just get pop-up wildlife things. Oh, so yeah. if an actual real animal triggers it but just crosses the highway, the flashing lights go on, you just have this pop-up thing of like a sheep. Yes. Somebody drives by and go, oh, yeah, no, oh, it's there's working. A sheep. <laughs> and then everybody's like, hey, you should slow down. There's lots of sheep by Elko there. Did you see was, that sheep again? <laughs> I, I was just thinking when you said you could report if there wasn't wasn't anything through there. So you drive through this, oh, slow down, there's a wildlife thing. You're like, oh, geez, there's nothing out there. So you pull your phone on, you go to report it, and then you smoke an elk <laughs> on the other side. <laughs> and then you can use the other app. Use the other, exactly, use the other app. Dead elk on the section of the highway. Yeah. And then the, the <laughs> highways department will pick up the elk. They'll report it, and then ICBC will report it when you do your insurance. And clients. they'll put it in a carcass pit and a grizzly bear lead it. Yeah. <laughs> what a time to be alive. I <laughs> see how all this stuff works. Um, all connected. So what are the, um, do you have, or the the group of you, are you focusing on particular species here in the Highway 3 corridor? Like where you're, you're, is your data saying, let's focus on? Yeah, so no, like the, we're definitely looking at crossing, getting all large mammals to cross. So yeah, in that way, we're focusing on large mammals. Okay. Um, we haven't done a lot for like the frogs or something like that. Mostly because that's not our skill set. We are large, furry, charismatic critters. Um, and I think there's a lot of sort of, there's a lot of trickle down conservation that happens here. Like I'm sure that mice and coyotes and things are still going to use these crossing structures, but things like amphibians, it's not quite as good. And there's, you know, more consideration needed. But so we're, we're looking at the big furry critters like grizzly bears and wolverine and elk and sheep and things like that um so even next week uh you had pat stanton recently did you yeah pat was on uh a couple episodes a couple episodes ago yeah so pat stanton and i are going to go collar some bighorn sheep in elko next week okay so for the exact idea that we want to know where these animals are crossing what does like how are they using the habitat that's not the highway? You know, like what are the corridors that they're trying to get to the highway on? And right before they get to the highway, that would be a great spot to make the crossing structure. Like what are the natural funnels that the landscape pushes them onto the highway? And that's where we'll build a crossing structure. But we need good GPS data for that. And where they hang out right now might not be the best spot to build the crossing structure because it could be where they get forced to um, by you know by salt or by getting pushed around by vehicles or where they can lick salt but not get hit there's all these weird sort of reasons why where they get hit and where they are standing right now are not the best spots to mitigate so we need to know how does the landscape naturally funnel them and that's where we'll build the crossing structure so sheep um and then we got good grizzly bear data and good elk data so those are probably the main species that'll prop up the location of these and there's a lot of overlap, luckily. Those species all kind of use very similar habitats. So 
a lot of the crossing structures will be multi-species. The only ones that usually end up being single are actually sheep ones because they end up being kind of rocky, cliffy microhabitats. But yeah, like you don't see a lot of elk through on the highway through the elk hole rock cuts no. where the sheep winter there. No, so. and like that spot would be, yeah, mostly bighorn sheep only. And, but it's not as specific as say on the Alberta side or sorry, on the, on the, I guess, crow's nest direction from here um, in the rock cuts there, like by Alexander Creek, you know, where it gets really cliffy. That's really just a sheep spot like yeah. we're not going to really cross that many other critters there it's just a big cliffy band where a few sheep come down but yeah the idea is to build these sort of general crossings that will facilitate the movement of as many species as possible so it, it's pretty simple the type of landscapes that funnel animals they're river valleys they're you know these big you can you can look at them on a map and you could point to them like they're very simple the the very fine scale placement comes from two sources of information. Telemetry data, like where should you put it like in this drainage or that drainage? That's kind of where the telemetry data helps you. And then there's an engineering piece where I say I want it here and the engineers go, no, that's not, like we cannot, that we will not do that. Like that doesn't work. And that's sort of within the maybe 500 meter range. Okay. Then the engineers take over. And it doesn't really matter within that range because we're going to fence it. And the animals will move, shift over 500 They'll meters to get it under it. And I think, you know, intuitively when I think of fencing and these sort of relatively constrained um, passages, I get like a little worried that, you know, the animals won't figure it out or it's just like we're kind of limiting their options, you know, as opposed to where they can cross anywhere. But you think about the Rockies and how actually difficult it is to navigate the Rockies when you're not in a valley bottom. Like when you're going through passes, you're going through a little tiny notch. And it's, it's basically the same principle here. Like the, the fence is basically like the continental divide. You can't go over the top, but there's going to be little passes all the way through. And that's actually a concept that these animals are incredibly familiar with. Hmm. No, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, mm. I've definitely seen that in the mountains, right? Like literally like a path, like oh, it's yeah. a foot and a half wide. It's been used for centuries. Cut through some little slot. And yeah. So it takes time um, for them to figure that out. Move over a few yeah. hundred meters. But. And there's a learning. And there could be like a cost to start. Like it might not be great for those first few animals because their landscape will change. But they will figure it out very quickly. Um, and there's ways to incentivize that with salt blocks and all kinds of things. Just as soon as they see it, they're good. Um, so, yeah, I think that's uh, a neat way to think about it. And... Um, that's the general approach that we're taking. Get as many animals safely across the highway as possible. Yeah. Huh. Well, that's a that's a pretty exciting project to be happening um, here in British Columbia for sure. Um, man, I think there's people all over this province that are just itching for stuff like that, right? Um, you know, the Okanagan is a pretty big, uh, pretty big hotspot. I know, like some of the data that I'm seeing from the mule deer in in the, um, the project that, you know, the BC Wildlife Federation, Adam Ford and 
University of Idaho and stuff are kind of yeah. like working on that you see this telemetry data of mule deer that are basically going east west and they're stopping at a highway turning around going back and stopping at a highway yeah. and they're just kind of like they're trapped between these these highways and of course now like in the Okanagan you got you know the highway that runs north south through the Okanagan Valley you got the old Highway 3 that runs parallel to the U.S. border and then you've got the Coquihalla that cuts over the trop and so you get these triangles and fragmented ha landscapes now that wildlife are just staying well and a lot of know. those are fenced like so the connector so i did my undergrad at in ubco there and would take the connector all the time which is the five the uh connector to the coke and it's fenced the whole way yeah and so that's that used to be a huge migration corridor and there is i i think that's the only wildlife overpass we have in british columbia as far as i know and it looks like it's a human passenger footbridge. Like it's, it's six feet wide type thing. It's not, it's nowhere near this like 40 meter big open span bridge that we think of when we think of, you know, Banff style wildlife overpasses. So there's one or two small crossings on there, but they're nowhere near. And, and to, you know, Modi's defense, uh, that was sort of before we knew a lot about this. That was probably a great step in the right direction, but they're too narrow. They're not spaced close enough. Like there's, I think there's two in that stretch. And yeah, it, it basically decimated that migratory ability of those mule deer in mm -hmm. that area. Well, and you see that still to this day. Yeah. And it's a typical yeah. thing. We don't know what we lost either, you know, cause we don't have, we didn't have a hundred mule deer collared and then intersected the highway and watched all the chaos erupt. We basically just have, we don't know what we lost in some so ways now, too. To go back to that highway corridor let's say as a restoration type project for highway crossings it's kind of a black hole for data to know where you would have to just basically use your best judgment like you were saying with landscape features yeah build a multi-million dollar crossing and hope that you put it in the right place that they like so yeah and you could use like if you know you know we know where ungulate winter range is and we do have a good idea of where good summer habitat is. So you could start basically figuring out where are they going to come from, where are they going to. And then th those animals are still, there's animals on the landscape that are migrating still to different areas that aren't fenced. So you kind of figure out when they migrate, what type of landscapes do they use? Are they like, um, you know, low slope and um, low canopy cover and high greenness? Or what are the different landscape attributes they select for? Yeah. And if you know where they need to go and you know where they start from and you know the landscape attributes in the middle, then you should be able to do a relatively good prediction of where that overpass should go. Should go. Okay. No, well, that's 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 good. But yeah, obviously the best way to start out is to Oh yeah. Nothing better than seeing like a line on a the map that the animals you know, to tell you. Deer twenty crosses here every year. It's like, okay, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> I can I can work with that instead of these sort of modeled predictions. But yeah. Huh. Now sort of moving on to um kind of like the way um you know some of these these corridors are the collisions in these corridors are being mitigated like you know i guess throughout north america like there's a lot of different a lot of different structures that are being used we kind of talked about you know about a few of them um overpasses and underpasses kind of being being the main ones like what are some of the what are some of the key things that we're learning like what the research is being done on these about successful overpasses and underpasses um we kind of talked a little bit about some 
widths and stuff? Is yeah. there? Yeah. Max. What are some of the thresholds that are like? How big do these things need to be? So the the rough thresholds are somewhere around like you want that crossing structure to be um, like over twenty or thirty meters wide. You know, you want a relatively good path for those animals to get over. Fifty meters as an upper bound, like that'd be a nice wide structure. Yeah. But the it just scales linearly with cost, you know. <laughs> so um, these things aren't free. Uh, so we'd probably try to hit some evidence-based threshold here, but we probably, it's unlikely we'd attain sort of that 50 meter level, but we'd probably shoot for a 20 or 30 meter wide structure, which is way different than say the few meter wide ones on the Coke. Like this is gonna be a, still a big wide effective structure. Um, anytime that you can max the size seems to be the win. The, the bigger the culvert, the bigger the crossing structure, um, anything that makes it more open and more appealing and I think, like a lot of things, there's not um, there's not necessarily enough money or volume in these things for um, like huge development yet per se. It's it's no different than wildlife colors. I mean, coloring wildlife is in the Stone Age. It's like my cell phone is orders of magnitude more complicated and more tested than the colors we put on animals, just because the market's not there right. for colors. And I think the same thing for wildlife crossing structures. It's not it's not a billion dollar industry that everybody's doing it yet, but it's slowly there's some momentum. So I just saw that in the states, thing in California, they're starting to develop these sort of recycled crossing structures. So it's basically these polymer type products that are um, spun fibers. It's a plastic crossing structure, basically in the end. Wow. And I don't like I I just read the report yesterday actually, but they are breaking new ground on these things. It doesn't have to look like um, every other crossing structure. You know, there's there's room for ingenuity, but like I say, that space is not um, it's not full of minds yet because there's just not the there's no market yet. Yeah, huh? Interesting. Yeah, I think um, some of the ones that I saw in um that they were building in Nevada, um, that videos that I would put up in the show notes, they were primarily addressing the, the mule deer and these big epic migrations that were in, in uh, Nevada and Wyoming has them too and, and stuff. And those structures were 50 meters oh, yeah. wide. Like the animals could actually get up on top of them and they were so wide that they would like, build them so that there were big soil berms and stuff on top and they were actually crossing it and they couldn't see to the sides to actually see the highway they just they got onto these things and all they could do is like well there's there's land there and land to my side and like land out in front of me so they just, it's just kept habitat it's just ha yeah they just kept moving from along the landscape. It, was, it was it was actually kind of too cool like from a from an artistic perspective too, when you look at the aerial views of those things, like just kind of how they actually like architecturally designed and they kind of look like, like the features of the open Nevada desert and stuff. So it was quite, quite attractive to mule deer. They're beautiful. And then the big thing was, is uh, you had said this earlier, is that there's the bridge, the crossing over the highway, but then when they hit the shoulders of the highway, they became these big wide flared shoots of fences. So they yeah. were actually, collecting and funneling the animals from several hundred meters 
as they were migrating towards the highway in. Totally. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's something that would be really appealing of driving around here and feeling like the animals were crossing and doing okay. You know, like it'd be, it'd be pretty fun to drive under an underpass in the Elk Valley, <laughs> you know, like that, or anywhere in BC, really. Like, I, I feel excited driving under them in Banff too, but something about just the national parks that feel more like um, that you're not as like part of the landscape, you know, like cause it's not multi-use. It's not like your land, you know, it's not crown public land. And I think if we could do something like that in the Valley and um, I think, I mean, it'd be a good feeling for people to drive under an underpass, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now I've seen, um, you know, sort of on, on the topics of different types of crossing structures, um, I mean, the, st the state of what they're actually, like, designing these things and uh, are, are pretty cool. Like, some of the the ones I've seen, like, these, these overpasses over the highway have actually got wetland habitat on them. Yeah. Like, they've actually got flowing water, like, in little cascading steps so that small amphibians and salamanders and stuff can stay in connected riparian habitat and work their way right over top of like even actual like large wetlands and stuff. So if something needs to like park it for a while, yeah, there's actually like a little body of water. Um, mm. Like it's it, it's pr pretty uh, pretty high high end stuff. Um, the some of the other ones I've seen like the, these big underpasses, these giant culverts you're talking about. On the sides of them, they're putting mini tunnels. Oh, in yeah, like yeah. even pipe and brush and stuff so when the small animals come along they're not like oh this is just a big wide open space for us like yeah. we don't like this they're just like i'm gonna go into this little tube yeah and scoot my way along yeah, this there, big so. wide space looks like a bunch of large mammals people <laughs> designed this <laughs> yeah yeah so i mean there was things like things like that that um and then it was we were talking on the phone this this morning and uh I think this might have been in Florida or in the South U.S. or whatever, where they had canopy crossings. So, so species of mammals that lived in the forest canopy, when they hit a road highway right away um, where it was cleared, rather than dropping to the ground and then trying to make it across and back up into the canopy, they were putting these tunnels over the highway, but they were building the tunnels into those big steel structures those arches that go over the highways that got all the different road signs and you know how many miles to the yeah. next city and all that kind of stuff and then the ends of the tunnel they actually had like ropes or cables or something that went back into the forest so these species would come along you know and connect get onto a <laughs> rope like you know a possum or whatever yeah. and then get into the tunnel and cross and mm. stay up in the treetops that's and, amazing um yeah pr pretty cool right down to like uh um I saw another one that was a amphibian crossing underneath of a highway, but on top of the highway, it was an open grate because they it had to maintain sunlight mm -hmm. to keep the temperature inside this tunnel relatively warm. Otherwise, these amphibians would come along and get into this super cold environment, which amphibians doesn't, doesn't like too well. And... and uh, they'd all go into hibernation in the middle of the middle of the crossing <laughs> structure. So it was like, there's some people out there doing some pretty, Oh, uh, totally. I think there's lots stuff. of room in this project cause it, you know, shovels haven't really hit the ground yet. Mm. I think 
just sort of our plan is to get the momentum and get some plans in place, but there's still lots of room to do those sorts of things. Um, yeah, like to get some amphibian experts and sort of some small mammal folks and how can we make this work even uh, more effectively for all the species on the landscape. Yeah. When you were talking about the uh, the mice and other things going through, it reminded me that there's a, people often wonder if the crossing structures would turn into a prey trap, you know, where a cougar would just sit in the bush then because this is just a through fare of animals. And it basically, uh, this is some work actually of Adam Ford's, and um, that sort of doesn't seem to be the case, at least in Banff. So that, you know, that was always a concern of folks. And I think one of the reasons is, even though the crossing structures are so effective at moving animals, the actual chance of you sitting there and seeing something cross is so low. So oh, there's like, there's not as if there's a stream of ungulates crossing it. So it's not necessarily that much more likely than anywhere else on the landscape or some really high quality habitat. It's still a roadside type risky-ish environment, yeah. you know, and highways come with towns and people and all those things often. So there's still probably a lot better places for animals to hunt. So that sort of prey trap hypothesis didn't really pan out in Banff anyway. So it's not something that we need to be immediately concerned about. Huh. Interesting. I know I'd heard kind of anecdotal stuff about when they started doing that uh, around the town of Banff, especially when they they started putting the high fencing along the highways to to finish off these these highway crossings that you heard all these stories about how the wolves had, were starting to use the fences to their advantage and they'd get up on the hillsides and they'd run the sheep. The sheep would run down the hillside, the sheep would go to the fence uh, yeah. and then of course the sheep would have to either like turn and left, run left or right and there would be wolves waiting along the fence line and it was just like chaos, the greatest thing. Yeah, so the fences might be, a, might be a bit of a different story, but I think that's probably all part of this short little transition period. Like, as soon as you change, like, there'll be a huge landscape change to fence this whole highway. And so I think there will be a bit of an adjustment period. And, <laughs> yeah, there could be some winners and losers for the short period while the sheep figure it out to not run into the fence or things like that. But right. probably won't be some, you know, probably won't have a catastrophe. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I know one of the uh, the things that um, Dr. Ford had reported to in one of his papers, because um, like the whole the whole Banff and the Bow Valley corridor thing. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. One of the things that precipitated that whole conversation was the 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 scientists picking up on on the lack of gene flow in bear populations on each side of the of the um, the Bow Valley yeah. highway is that <clears throat> one of his reports showed that um, that uh, said 40, 47% of the black bears and 27% of the grizzly bears that were using those crossings had successfully bred when they, when they, you know, so essentially they were using crossings and going to the other side and successfully breeding. So like, you know, a third to roughly half of the bears were... Yeah accomplishing that objective of continuing to mix the genes yeah i think so adam's done a lot of work in there but i think that that one i don't think that one was adam i think that was uh mike soya oh was it okay. yeah and so um that genetic work uh yeah i think that was some of the like the first and best evidence that the banff work was actually having 
an impact on restoring genetic connectivity. And then so there's really two kinds of connectivity. There's this sort of demographic and then genetic connectivity. So demographic being, can animals just get across and, you know, have their normal life? Can they try to reproduce even like satellite bulls and things like that, even if they don't spread their genes versus actually physically spreading your genes? So if you're on one side of the valley and you cross and then mate with a female over there, then your genes have, you know, made that cross. So the crossing structures, we know that they facilitate demographic connectivity. We know that animals can successfully cross on them, but that was really important work that mm. showed that the, the genes were crossing with those animals. Yeah. And that's also like, that should be a likely consequence of crossing, but you could imagine if it's only sub-adults crossing and they have no chance of breeding and there's no females crossing, then there actually would be very little gene flow. Yeah. So... That was really important. So that, that is, yeah, that is that is quite interesting. <clears throat> One of the things I when I when I read that I was I was sort of like, okay, so I need to ask you this is so how do they how do they figure that out that these percentage of these animals are successfully breeding when they're crossing the structures? Like, does someone like this like a questionnaire? It's like, excuse me, sir. It's like. <laughs> Did you, did you, each time you use one of these crossings, um, do you mate when you get on the other side? Like A, every time, B, sometimes, C, never, or not applicable? Like, how do you actually? Usually with like pelvically mounted GoPros. Oh, okay. No, I'm yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should have You should have let that one run because people, people would have uh, thought that was a real thing. So. <laughs> no, so... Um, <clears throat> with what we would call pedigree analysis. So uh, basically reconstructing who the moms and dads are of, of offspring. And if you have a large enough sample of the population and you know, uh, if you know the, in this case, the cub, the baby bear is on one side and mom lives there. And then you can identify who dad is and he lived on the other side and he was a crosser, then that's basically one of those data points that that animal crossed and then spread his genes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And that, that can be done through stuff like the hair, hair snagging? all non-invasive. Like that whole <clears throat> paper, nobody ever touched a bear, okay. which is pretty cool. Like Just snagging hair off of yeah. off of the barbed wire yeah. on rub trees or from bait, yeah. bait and traps. and bait sites. And well. so, I mean, that's like, that's huge insight that you can document them crossing and then whether they're spreading their genes I mean, nobody ever touched a bear in that whole paper, which is pretty neat stuff. Huh, that is very cool. Um, one of the things that I thought was really fascinating, too, about one of the papers that you sent me, um, <coughs> this is kind of just backing up a little bit, was about um, kind of thresholds that were involved in the numbers of vehicles on highways and the, the ability of animals to cross the highway. Yeah. And what I gleaned from that was is you can have like one vehicle or zero vehicles per day on the highway. And the percentage of animals across the highway, the success of getting across alive is very high. The numbers of animals that are killed on the highway is very low. And then as the numbers of vehicles start to increase, the success of animals crossing the highways goes down. The numbers of animals dying goes up. But then it starts to go the other direction. The more and more and more vehicles you get, you actually get less animals killed on the highway. But the percentage of animals that try to cross, their mortality is very high. 
Yeah. So. And I guess that trend could be explained <clears throat> by also like at that really high level, most of the animals are dead. You know, like mortality could keep going up because abundance is still, you know, doing fine. But yeah. then at some point, yeah, the abundance just tips and basically there's hardly any animals left. It was really Hardly high. any animals left. And the, the other thing I gleaned from it too is that when it was sort of like around 10,000 vehicles per day on a section of highway, that's when the avoidance thing kicked in. Yeah. The animals were just like, screw this. And like, we're not going anywhere near that thing. Yes. <clears throat> um, so the numbers of animals killed on the highway was going down. But if an animal said, oh, I think I can make it, boom. Yeah. Dead. So their their successes is very low. But what I found interesting was is that it was around the six to seven thousand vehicles per day is where the highest level of animals mortalities were on the highway. Yeah. Which is roughly where the Elk Valley where you guys live right now is kind of sitting around that level of six to nine thousand vehicles today. So yeah. you're really sitting at <clears throat> peak critical tipping point here peak yeah so either you're either gonna solve the problem and get animals across the highway or you're going to deter animals from using large parts of habitat <coughs> on each side of the highway which is going to potentially affect their abundance on the landscape totally yeah, yeah. or you're going to kill them all off <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's probably a bit of both um and i think that that number of the traffic volume is only increasing like every year highway three is getting busier and busier and and for a few reasons i mean so they're going to start diverting traffic from highway one down here as they do some uh upgrades in the kicking horse so some heavy heavy vehicle traffic is going to come through here now that's right yeah and then another <coughs> one is um these cattle liners are now all coming through here they don't cross um what's the border crossing in alberta can't you remember um anyways the the one that's on the like pincher side right yeah by over towards waterton yeah there yeah they're coming through southern bc and going over to kingsgate exactly yep. and that's their preferred crossing now so they're they're alberta cattle that are coming through and there's 50 plus cattle liners coming through past the house every day now yeah and, and i noticed they seem to be a lot of them are nighttime they all stack up and yeah plow through here at nighttime yeah so that's you know that's huge increases in in vehicles and um well i i don't know was it it was two falls ago there was two or three of them piled up all in a row as well um two of them hit the uh the tunnel so for the uh, for listeners we have a big rock tunnel basically the highway goes through and uh one of the cataliners clicked clipped the rock tunnel and all the cows came out the side basically so we were you know there was police and we were cleaning up cows getting them all you know back into their Grizzly cattle liner oh yeah exactly it was chaos <laughs> i was in the middle of a bear trapping season i was actually i was more of like an ambulance chaser i went there looking for bait <laughs> i was like oh, are there any cows but they were all getting any of the ones that ended up not making it were taken away because of uh the risk material you yeah. know the diseases yeah. but yeah so lots more traffic and just from all sorts of different sources i mean that cattle liner thing the diversion from highway one and just you know bc is becoming more of a tourism engine every year we're pushing that hard and there's a lot of money in it so people are coming to bc because bc is awesome yeah but yeah it means that the infrastructure we have needs to be able to accommodate that yeah and and protect <coughs> both 
both people and wildlife. Yeah, and, and it, like that wildlife and that sort of natural capital is part of what those people are coming for. That's what coming makes for. BC special, you know? So we got to make sure that that's in the long-term plan to protect that. Yeah, and that's this the is draw. Definitely, definitely a very key part of <clears throat> BC to be doing something like that here. Like we said earlier, this highway that basically cross-cuts through the Rocky Mountains east to west in an area where a tremendous amount of our wildlife want to move north and south yeah it's the most important spot and and they're actually uh so i'm working up the elk data for the sparwood club right now so we're there's lots of really cool information there like migratory behaviors and how the elk are um just using the landscape and there's elk that are migrating from sparwood to alberta and they're kind of using that highway three corridor but they're having to cross the highway so there's even these east-west migrations that oh, interesting. Well, I, I didn't know about until we started crunching those data. So that exact corridor that we want to um, mitigate has north, south, and east-west migrations of animals. I mean, if you think about it, if you went back to, uh, um, you know, way back in time um, when that highway wasn't there, what was the easiest way to move from the foothills oh, yeah. into the Rockies or from the foothills into the Rocky Mountain Trench? Yep. It was like, we're, this is the highway corridor. It's like... Same reason we built the highway the, there. Built the yeah. highway there, right? Like it's like... <laughs> it's easier, a good spot. Easier walk. And so, um, wow, that's, um, that's a pretty interesting subject. And like you said at the very beginning, I think it um, this is something that touches uh, everybody. <clears throat> you know, hunters, non-hunters, whatever. I think that's an irrelevant part of this, this discussion. People care about wildlife. They care about being safe on the highway. They don't like to see things hit and like you said everybody that you talk to will have some sort of an experience to do with you know wildlife being hit on the highway and de definitely something that you can get everybody behind which is a huge win in this day and age is to get everybody totally on the same page on on something and and uh people that have the money to pay for this stuff tend to like that kind of stuff where everybody's all yeah the win-wins yeah pulling for something yeah, that's something that our, our research group has been, I think, relatively lucky in working in sort of scenarios where we can foster those win-wins. Like, yeah. Just like the carcass pit issue, I mean, besides that, you know, these things have a small upfront cost, but besides that, nobody's advocating for feeding dangerous carnivores near where people are having a rest stop with their family and trying to launch their boats, you know? Like yep. it's, you pitch this and it says, okay, this would be better for bears. They won't get hit on the highway and they won't... Um, be in conflict with people and we can all be safer like that's you know these kind of things are yeah the kind of win-wins that i think unite science and hunters non-hunters and the society together to kind of try to move the needle for wildlife and i think the valley is an exciting place to do that too because absolutely. there's lots going on here and lots of really dedicated people absolutely yeah it's um yeah it's a great great topic um now you're you're a scientist, you work on, you know, truth and absolutes. Uh, when it comes to this whole issue of wildlife and vehicle collisions and, you know, people, hunters especially, want more wildlife on the landscape, but we're seeing declining populations of wildlife on the landscape. On a, on a scale of um, zero to ten, where zero is total BS and ten is undisputed, undisputable universal truth what do you think about this whole claim that it's actually 
our automobile insurance company that's dictating wildlife policy to decrease wildlife populations to prevent all of these collisions and costs. Yeah, I'd say that's <laughs> got to be a zero. Yeah, I just, no, that's probably not likely. Not that like there wouldn't be a, like, sure, a great, like, nefarious motivation for that, but I'm almost certain that the coordination could never happen. They're not pulling the strings from behind the scenes to no magically cause wildlife populations to decrease to save on premiums. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's pretty funny. I just it, think that, like, <laughs> even if that was, like, a mandate, the chance of it effectively working its way down to the ground, <laughs> from what I've seen, is about zero. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, it's, uh, it, and, I mean, it's funny. That's not just a BC thing. I think that whole... Um, conspiracy theory about it, it's the auto insurance companies that are that are wanting these wildlife populations reduced because of the cost of vehicle collisions. I, I think that's like a North America thing. I don't know. Maybe people in Europe are, uh, think think that it's happening there too. But I, I I I've heard it in more places than yeah. just here in BC that that's happening. So I think in the spirit of that argument, that's certainly something that we're going to use. Not that there's a conspiracy, but that. This costs money, and ICBC... It's a driving factor to get yeah. people to the table. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think ICBC, we're hoping they will come to the table with us, you know, because, of course, my salary, I, I'm a I'm a Libero postdoctoral fellow. I'm paid by, you know, not ICBC. Um, all the experts are paid by other people. The Spar Fishing Game, Game Club's putting money into this tech is, but if all the benefits are accrued by ICBC in cost savings, you know, of course, that's not a very equitable type relationship. So I think that eventually we'll hope to have ICBC at the table and try to figure out how the funds and um, funding sort of uh, levers will work for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, definitely. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool, um, the, the the work that you're, that you're involved in, in here. I mean, one of the things I admire about you as a scientist and and a, and a lot of people a lot of scientists out there that are sort of in in your age bracket is your your scientists now that are dedicated to wildlife conservation that you're sort of like hey um this is what our research is showing this is what our data is showing and you're not just sort of like going here society um you got the information do what you want with it leave me alone uh, you know you're basically like saying hey i'm i'm gonna keep raising my voice and keep rattling and, and dragging people along and make something change, even if it's small. Yeah. Um, but you're, you're advocating for your, for your research, the information that you're finding out to translate into things that's good for people, that's good for wildlife. And uh, that's pretty cool to see, you know, science, science doing that nowadays as opposed to the, you know, the whole image of the, scientists in the universities and their gray suits and yeah. you know like gruff and don't like to engage with people just it's eggheads yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the opposite now so yeah um, no i think that i at least in sort of my generation of learning we've been always sort of told especially you know the kind of supervision and mentorship i had with uh you know dr Booten and at u of a was just that the science itself is not enough anymore like just doing the science in itself will not create that change. So you really kind of have to engage with the communities and with, you know, with politicians even and with everybody. Yeah. Get but out there and explain it to them. 
it creates a, a certainly a strange situation for like us as scientists though where you know i'm a field biologist so i i can go out and capture a grizzly bear out of a helicopter or leg snare a grizzly bear but then you know we also have to i work on my computer and i i know how to code like i'm a I'm a nerd, you know, as well. <laughs> but then we also kind of, we have to know how to communicate science and work with politicians and stuff. So it, I think it's a really exciting career in that way, but it does create challenges. Like it's pretty hard to be all those things and nobody is. So we all kind of have our strengths and weaknesses. So it always does feel like there's lots to learn. Like it's pretty hard to be a field person, a nerd and a politician all at <laughs> one time, you know? <laughs> yeah, let's see. Uh that's the job that you guys take on now for becoming a doctor. Yeah. PhD, yeah. Yeah. The, the be all end all of everything. So, yeah. I mean, uh, there's a lot of good stuff going on, you know, at very high levels um, to solve, you know, some of these problems of wildlife vehicle collisions. I mean, the average person still traveling the highway, uh, highways nowadays is, is, is still at risk. Um, I got to drive home tonight here in the dark for an hour and a half on this exact section of highway we've been talking about. So, I mean, people, if you're, you know, you're still out there, um, I mean, anywhere in British Columbia, particularly Southern British Columbia, it's like, it's something you got to be ultra sensitive to scanning the ditches, looking for eyes, looking for wildlife. If there is a wildlife sign on the high, you know, the highway, it's there for a good reason. Slow down, um, you know, watch usually one animal on the side of the highway in this part of the world generally means there's more animals there somewhere. Yeah, don't follow you it. Know, as maybe it the, maybe a moose eyes. might be by <laughs> itself, but I mean, elk, white-tailed deer, mule deer, sheep, even mountain goats. There's usually going to be more, more than one. So um, you, you got to keep your keep your eye open for those. Um, elk start crossing the highway at this time of the year. Could be there could be a hundred following behind it. Uh, white-tailed deer like to go across highways really quickly, and at the last second, they change their mind and they like to be back where they started. And so a lot of times, you know, sometimes these collisions with wildlife are actually, it's done 180 degrees and bounced back in front of you. And, you know, people are driving and they're thinking, oh, it's, it's crossed, it's out of my lane so I can carry on. And then in a split second, it's right back in front of them. So yeah, um, I know there's people that uh, like to listen to this podcast while they're driving. I think that's one of the number one things that people say. And um, so if you're listening, be careful. Uh, I know there's one person... In Cranbrook, his name's Gavin. He drives this section of highway from Cranbrook to the mines almost every single day, um, listens to our podcast. So if you're listening to this right now, Gavin, um, watch for wildlife, drive safely. You got a pretty cool little family there at home wanting you to get home safe and sound. So um, glad you listened to the podcast while you're driving to work, but watch for wildlife on the highway there, bud. Yeah. Um, cool. Thanks, Clayton. My pleasure. Thanks I, for having uh, me. It was awesome having you again. Um, like to get you back on here this year and talk about the caribou stuff up north. That'd be great. Yeah. The uh, whole wolf thing is not going away. It's still a hot topic. Yeah. Lots to share on that. And I think there's lots of exciting stuff in the sort of indigenous-led conservation front. Yeah. And I mean, that announcement was just <coughs> a little while ago. It was, so last, it was this past Friday, so yeah. Thursday today, so less than a week ago. It's huge, like landmark type. Mm -hmm. decision so yeah i'd love to chat with you about that and yeah we'll let that shake out a little bit and kind of see how it unfolds and mm -hmm. then get get back together again this year and totally talk yeah. talk caribou and and 
wolf calls because that whole topic is not going away. So. I'm up there next week catching caribou for the map pen. Okay. So we'll, be, we'll have two A stars in the air and we'll be that, catching that females. The whole maternity pen thing is almost as controversial as uh, as the wolf call stuff. It's yeah. Especially uh, in the one episode with uh, um, Helen Swancha, the head wildlife yeah. that we talked about. Um, and the, the captive the breeding thing program. And yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, maybe uh, catch up with that. No, if, that'd uh, be great. No, that's awesome. So, uh, you going turkey hunting this spring? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm hooked. Hey, <laughs> good it for was you. was fun, yeah. Good for you. I was you. just thinking about that the other day. I was oh, like, yeah. you know, there's no, you know, we don't have any grizzly bear hunting in the, in BC anymore. And we don't actually have very many black bears in the East Coonies. We have so many grizzly bears. And it's like, oh, go turkey hunting. That'd be yeah. great. <laughs> go turkey hunting. Yeah. Because you're allowed a one in region four. Yeah. And you can go to region eight and get a new another one. Ah. So provincially you can get two bearded in the springtime, but only one per region. So. Turkey road trip. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. I'm working towards that. Maybe connect up with uh Dr. Ford in Kelowna. Yeah. Get out, do some turkey hunting with him, get him on a podcast. That would be pretty cool. That'd so. be great. He'd love and, that. Uh, and and we got those fancy new camouflage hats that are Perfect uh, for your, uh, perfect for the listeners' upcoming turkey hunts. Turkey hunting, yeah. yeah. Like go online, get, get check yourself that a out. Turkey hunting hat. Yeah. Buy a turkey hunting hat. I heard they up your success rate. They do. They do. <laughs> you gotta, you, you, you have to get some sort of tape and put it over the orange moves. Oh, the yeah. orange, the, the orange part, part yeah. But then, you, but, uh, <laughs> but then the green camel's gonna help you get get a turkey. Get so there you go. You heard <laughs> it here first, folks. So. <laughs> the the only thing you gotta be careful turkey hunting this summer is where, or this spring is where you set up and you do your calling because you don't want to get a gobbler to answer and then have to call him across the highway because we don't mm -hmm. want him to get hit. So nope. Why did the turkey cross the highway? Look after your gobblers. Yep. Yeah. Call them in. Yep. Keep your gobblers safe. Yep. Don't gobble <laughs> near a highway. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye.